edition, the Staff's Tackle for Equality, which is an initiative funded by FAIR and part of their Black Lives Matter and football movement. Today, we're joined by Elam Hunewald, Chief Director of Sports at Martis, Ostelenbosch University, for those who won't know. And I was joined by Alita Kuchana, my co-host for this podcast. Alita, how are you doing? Very well, very well, Brian. Thanks for asking. I hope you're well, too. Um, very exciting conversation. I mean, it's not every day you get to speak to someone so accomplished um, and as well so passionate about the, the job that she does. And, you know, we touched on a very important topic around transformation in sport. So I'm sure the, the listeners will really enjoy this chat. Yeah, it was really inspiring and, and absorbing. And I hope you guys enjoy. So thank you for listening. Okay, so um, to start off, we just want to paint the picture around you, basically, and have a snippet into the background of your life. You know, um, you've had an extensive history in sports, as um, people get to know. But just um, in your early years, how did your love for sports and um, sports development come about? Well, I got opportunities at school, uh, but not primary school that much. I really started to be involved in sport on a more regular basis when I entered high school. And so I did an 800 meter in athletics and I also played netball um, at the school. Uh, and because of the, the the history of South Africa in particular, apartheid, you know, most of us... Um, coming from the rural areas, because I'm originally from the Northern Cape, a place called Camus, we did not necessarily have those opportunities. So most of the times we would play amongst each other, um, the historically black schools. So that, that is, that's where my love started for sport. And I, I pretty much knew then already that I enjoyed the, the organizing part. So I would always be the person going to the teacher to fetch the equipment and the upset it up and so on. So Back then already, I had a love for, for getting involved and getting things organized, other than just enjoying the participation part of it. So the development after that, because um, we know you were a student representative council and part of many committees and played volleyball as a focus. Um, but you went into you know, studying your business administration, management and operations early in the late 80s, was it always your goal to, you know, go into sports organization and in turn, you know, be to where you are now? Yes, I, you know, I was 20 years old when I was um, selected to represent the university's national volleyball team, but unfortunately, were not able to participate at that level. And so there I decided to rethink my future because at the age of 20, you start to think about moving into a full-time job, having completed my first qualifications, which is what happened when I turned 21. But like I said, my love for administration and organizing started at the early age. So when I was 18 years old, I became a student assistant at the then Peninsula Technical, now Cape Peninsula University of Technology. And I knew that I had a love for, for you know, being in committees and, and um, administration and just managing things um, other than, um, you know, being on the playing fields. So I started to think about, you know, what would be best for me. And studying business administration was not an accident. Um, 
I knew that, you know, I have, without having the facts at the time, being young, I've, I've read quite widely. And I worked, my first full-time job was at the political studies department at the University of the Western Cape, the most interesting, most developmental time of my life from the, mid the early 90s up to the mid-90s. We know that was a very uh, pertinent, important phase of our democracy in South Africa. And I happened to be amongst some of the best academic minds in South Africa, if not worldwide at the time. And that's how I, I grew. I grew quite quick, um, if I may say that. And, and it, it, was, it was my colleagues then and our students, our postgraduate students, who then made me believe that, you know, I have the ability to bring sport together. I love politics and I would be able to make a contribution in, in a different way. And I started to follow their advice and, and they helped me build my journey. My then first boss, Dr. Vincent Mapai, I remain in contact with him today because he played a pivotal role in helping me craft my future. Um, so, yes, I, I've always known that I wanted to be involved in leadership um, and administration of the game. Yes, and, and as you say, Ms. Lam, um, you know, obviously you, you mentioned that you, you come from a, a very modest um, community in, in the Northern Cape. How did, how did a, a, you know, a young girl from, from, from uh, back then, you know, have these big dreams and, and actually move over all the way down to Cape Town to, to, to study and, 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 and sort of pursue her dreams? How did that come about? Just in terms of, you know, the, the belief that you had, was it, was it a matter of the, the family that you, the family support that you got or the other external factors that sort of drove you and made you believe that, you know, you are capable of, of, of achieving. And then, you know, the fact that you just set out and then go to the big city of, of Cape Town and to study there, how did that all come about? So I'm going to give a lot of credit to my then uh, principal, uh, Mr. Berti Ferris. And again, I remain in contact with him. A, a few years ago, I learned that he was actually in business with my husband. So what a, what a 360 uh, part of my life that was. And he quietly was involved in, in, um, in the struggle back then. Um, and and I, I, I found out about it, although not too many people knew about it. And, and I used to have very interesting conversations with him. Being young at the time, obviously your parents didn't allow you to, to do things. Um, all of the action happened in Uppington, that is 40 kilometers away from Camus. And I was just too young. I was never allowed to go there. But he was one of the people at school who inspired me. I, um, in fact, you know, my father was a carpenter. Um, he, he was troubled that I needed to come to Cape Town, taking a loan from a bank. Um, and he felt that I was going to be dependent on white people's money to pursue my future, to put it blunt. And uh, in, in secret, uh, myself and my mother went to the bank and we got the 800 Rand um, um, loan that set me off to come to Cape Town. And it was, a, it was an important decision, but it's also a sad decision because I felt that I was, I was lying to my father. Um, but I also realized that I cannot allow certain factors to stand in my way if I wanted to pursue my, my future. Um, so yeah, that, that's how my journey started. And, and so it was, it was, it was always a, a matter of having to consider the factors being family, how they felt, and yeah, I, I almost stood up against uh, what my father believed I, I should have done. And but if I didn't do that, I don't know what what would have happened to me uh, if I didn't make that bold decision. But the two of us, um, we we never ended uh, uh, loving each other. You know, I I I 
took the time to keep him abreast and, and tell him what I was up to. And so, yeah, we, we uh, a year or so later, things were okay again. So, yeah, that was a bold decision. And so I became the first um, graduate in my family. Um, and it's an, it's, an, it's an amazing achievement that I can all only uh, um, uh, give the recognition to them because my, my siblings, they would always uh, motivate me and say, you know, I can do that, et cetera. Yeah, and as you mentioned, you touched on, you know, being a part of the struggle back then. And we can, as, you know, 90s babies can only imagine what it was like back then. But, you know, being part of that and being a woman, it's sort of a double-edged sword um, back in the day. But how did you overcome that to, you know, be your, uh, get into your first job at UWC, you know, as director in sport? So it was a long journey. I started working um, in 1991 in the political science department and I, I um, ended my uh, amazing journey there at the end of 1999. I was involved in sport club management, specifically volleyball, when I joined UWC. And so I was always in contact with the UWC sport department. And the then head of sport, uh, Mr. Constance, um, was an amazing uh, person in terms of showing me the ropes and allowing me to get to know the system. And then a vacancy became available as a sport administrator. Um, and then I applied for it. And the person that I, that I again, want to acknowledge is Dr. Julian Smith. Um, maybe you know his history in terms of rugby and, um, you know, him not being given a fair chance uh, being a black player. But he gave me an opportunity as a sport administrator. And I started that journey at the end of 1999 at the sport department. Uh, two years later, I became a senior sport administrator. And another two years later, two and a half years later, I took over the reins from Mr. Constance and became the youngest head of sport um, for high education sport uh, in South Africa. A, a very exciting, but also very, in a way, scary uh, space to find yourself in. So, yes, I had a, I, 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 one of the key things that I did was to surround myself with people from different industries that could, that could helped me to move out of the comfort zones and my, my own boundaries. And, and you can hear me speaking passionately about the political science department because they were the group of people who really groomed me. Um, I mean, I, I was allowed to do all sorts of courses at the political science department and it really set me up for a, for a good wicket to take up the responsibility as a sport administrator. UWC as, a, as, a, as an a, you know, institution of higher learning gives a lot in, in, in supporting its, its staff and students. And, and I, I am no exception. There are many, many great stories uh, that, that you can derive from UWC. And I was very fortunate that I became one of the people that, that the university decided to look after. The late uh, Dr. Ingrid Miller, who was the registrar at the time, was an amazing support for me. And, um, you know, the people that I reported to, uh, my last boss, uh, uh, Professor Lulu Chihula, a woman that that would push me very hard, but would also give me the necessary support um, that I needed. So being a woman um, is not an easy uh, uh, position to find yourself in. But I think as women, we we should from time to time exert ourselves. And, and most importantly, is the importance that we need to and must coexist with me, with men. And so you, uh, in in telling my story to you, you can hear that I had a 
a, a, a basket of, of, of support that included both men and women. And, I, and there was a, it, it didn't happen by accident. Um, I, I was also very specific around the diversity of the people that I would expose myself to. Um, I mean, I would have hours of conversations with, with some of our black political scientists to understand their thinking, where they come from. The same with uh, white uh, political scientists, et cetera, you know, all sorts of, 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 of colleagues in terms of across the board as far as demographics is concerned, because the political science department at the time consisted of all demographics of our country. So, yeah, it, it's, it's um, you know, I can't stop, to, stop talking about my <laughs> no, that that that's really amazing. It's really amazing. And you know, you speak so fondly of of your time, particularly in your early days um, at uh, at UWC. What were some of the your highlights? Some of the the memories that you that will that still remain with you to this day. You know, of, of your time there, particularly when you were heading up uh, at Department of Sports. So, what was some of the the project that you were part of, or some of the the, the players or individuals that you came across that you know you always. Be, be very proud of what you were part of, of their journey. So, so one of the, the projects that I'm very, very proud of is the upgrading of the UWC Sports Stadium. Now, just to give you a, a quick summary. So the project started by fixing a leaking roof. And they told me they've got five million. And I said, no, we don't want a roof to be fixed. Then they did an assessment and they told me, oh, we can give you 16 million. And I said, no, that is not enough. It doesn't set a dream 50 years from now. Then they came, they told me 22 million. And then I still said that's not enough money. And then with uh, Mr. Larry Pogpas, who's the executive assistant in the rector's office, we then embarked on writing a plan that then resulted in, in receiving money from government um, to support that. So that project, eventually that project, um, the overall cost of that project, including parking, et cetera, et cetera, uh, costed the university 52 million. So from 5 million to 52 million. It's not, it was not just about the money. It was about developing a vision for the senior leadership of the university to believe in and being able to sell that vision and then resulting in, in that outcome. And, 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 and Professor Brian O'Connell, the then um, rector and vice chancellor, he loves sport. Uh, and so I think I had a little bit of biasness in that regard, if I may say. <laughs> so that's the one. And I think the other one is definitely um, uh, developing the rugby from a varsity shield. And, and by the time I left in, in, in 2014, you know, it just took flight. And, and UWC now being a very well-recognized rugby team playing in the varsity cup competition. And people like Francois Pinar, Yuri Ru, Deitzer Bosman, again, the rector's office, people who supported me to make sure that UWC, you know, end up the late Chester Williams. And I remember with the appointment happening, was appointed, we spent hours talking about rugby and he always referred to me as his mentor in high education sport. I started this journey off with Dion Davids, who's now the assistant coach of the Springbok team. Paul True has now been appointed. So that's an amazing picture for rugby at UWC. But this I could never have done alone. I mean, there's a team of people that worked with me, Mandisi Tsonti, um, you know, just, just amazing people that were able to come in and help support the vision. So, yeah, again, rugby, very passionate about it. And just it's phenomenal, the achievements that UWC has recorded up until today. Mandlaka Guy took over the reins from me as the director of sport when I joined uh, Stellenbosch in 2014. And, you know, you continue to read about the successes of, of, of UWC rugby. 
but then also the varsity sports competitions. Um, you know, so many of the sporting codes of UWC started to qualify to go into the varsity sports competitions, um, you know, athletics. I and mean, UWC has an amazing football program. You see so many of the women making the Banyana Banyana team uh, and, the, and the team qualifying for varsity sports. So I, I believe that, that the leadership that I gave for the support um, established UWC as the best performing historically black university in high performance sports in South Africa. And I'm, and I'm, you know, I say this with strong, uh, I believe in that because I did my homework and I can firmly say that, that UWC has certainly achieved that, that milestone. So yes, UWC is a very special place to me. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I received a, a, the, the, the Chancellor's Award for my contribution. But, you know, I wish, you know, I, I think this, this, this award belongs to the university because the university invested in me. I can I can certainly attest to that, uh, Mr. Lane, because I I did my honors uh, sports management honors at UWC and I was involved with a few of the rugby departments and, mm-hmm. and um, I can definitely attest to the amazing work you did in that in that, at that university for sure. Thanks, Rita. It's a, yeah, it's goosebumps stuff, eh? And then I joined Stellenbosch, <laughs> and yeah, I'm waiting for your question on Stellenbosch University. <laughs> yeah, but just to piggyback off of Lita there, and I think it's really good that you mentioned sort of the projects that you did at UWC because I know, you know, Tristan Leeds and Cupido are some of the rugby players that I've become, you know, followed through their journey from UWC to where they are now. I mean, Tristan Leeds is playing for Stormers now. But, you know, how important was it to empower, you know, those type of communities? Because the higher the high learning institutions, um, you know, around that area like Stellenbosch and uh, University of Cape Town are a bit saturated in terms of the amount of students they can, you know, bring into those institutions. But UWC has, you know, as you mentioned, has made leaps and bounds from from where they were. But how important was it to give access to resources and facilities and training for these young athletes you know so that they can forge careers in sport and not just as athletes but in you know support structures so that was exactly what was holding uwc back you you spot on i mean the only thing that was standing between us and other universities was the fact that we just didn't you know at the time resources weren't adequate so for example um lito and brian i know what it is of student particularly athletes that don't have food to eat uh, I, I know what this is all about. And so one of the, and it's, it's sad stories, and, and hopefully I won't cry when I tell you this. So one of the things that I've done, a, a completely extraordinary thing, but I decided to do it. You know, I got my mother-in-law to cook for the rugby team. And the list just became longer and longer, and she became the auntie that would give them a nutritional meal, even one meal a day. But this is an acknowledgement I will give to the then head of sport, Mr. Constance, because he said to me, you know, we're doing an unconventional thing. I said, I'm prepared to do it to get the results, and I'm prepared to be held accountable. It worked out very well. Um, Secondly, the bursary uh, um, support of the students I met with Mr. Mike Quacha, my then co- my ex-colleague, and I needed to share with him why they needed to look at student athletes differently. He bought into this vision 
with Kaya Magopeni, the Professor Chiula's executive assistant. And they started to change the bursary uh, 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 allocations with NISFAS at the time, also making provision for our students to be able to get vouchers so that they can buy food. We managed to get a couple of vouchers, not just for rugby, but football, athletics, etc. So on a monthly basis, we would collect our vouchers, our students will sign off and they were able to go and buy food. The, 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 the other thing was the accommodation. You know, if you don't have a roof over your head, you can imagine uh, your, your state of mind. Um, and my colleague, Mark, uh, who was the, the head of, of residence um, and still is the head of residence, he bought into the vision. You know, we got a rugby house from him. And that rugby house is still operating. Wonderful, isn't it? We, we, we manage, I spoke to deans of faculties where I would sell a good performing student athlete and they would look into to their budgets and they would assist us. So it was a, a number of levels of engagements to sell a vision. But I think most importantly, the university's executive bought into my vision. My boss bought into my vision. I mean, she, at times she would remind me and say, you know, you want so much, take it one step at a time. And I would say, no, I want it all. But she was my reasoning voice to make sure that things happen. So food, housing, having the, the no, no uh, uh, worries about who's going to pay my tuition fees, building the rapport among students to get to know each other, building a system that could support them so that they can perform academically. And making sure that we have good coaching in place. And then, of course, the facilities that I spoke about early on. These are simple ingredients for a successful sport program. But it's not that simple if you don't have the budget to support it. So those are the things that I did. And it took me a t uh, some time to do it. But I think we had short, medium, and long-term successes. And I think the long-term successes, I, I, I'm, I, you can still see it from the UWC sport program. Um, and yeah, so those are the things that I did with the rest of my team. And it wasn't that easy. You know, people thought, um, you know, how long is this going to take? When are we going to see the results? But that's exactly the point. In sport, you don't see the results. And particularly, and this is the thing in terms of students that come from a disadvantaged area, unless you truly understand who the students are, where they come from, what is it that they're struggling with? I spend time doing this. I spend time with speaking to students, to coaches, walk around on campus, observe what's happening. You know, having the opportunity to sit down with a student and yeah, they don't even have money to buy the basic of, of toiletries to look after, uh, you know, their, their basic hygiene. It's heartbreaking stories. I know of those stories. And those are the stories that, 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 that kept me going and it's my voice of reasoning to say, but you don't have a choice but to make this happen. And you know, today I am still friends with them on Facebook, on WhatsApp. And, and that's, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps telling you this. That's the amazing work that, that I think collectively we were able to achieve at UWC. Yeah, and I think it's really, really important, you know, the first point that you mentioned there, which is, you know, actually knowing the students. because. I think it's common among when you're in certain certain spaces, whereas if you're an athlete of color or you know just a student of color and they don't understand you, they don't understand where you come from. For example, a player who travels from so far to to come to training and 
you know, he's late almost every trading session because he has to take about three taxis to get there. Mm-hmm. But they don't understand that, you know, this guy is making, you know, three times effort than, you know, some of the players who are there 15 minutes early who just drove there for 15 minutes. And, you know, sometimes in the higher, or let's um, say the, the high-performance centers, they just don't understand, you know, some of these athletes. And I think it's really important that to highlight what you mentioned there as to understanding the students and understanding the athletes that, you know, you, you're guiding in life. You know, one important thing I forgot to mention was UWC then also we implemented a transport system where our drivers would drop our students at home late at night. Now, there was a time in my life when I didn't have a car and I would be in this vehicle driving with the students as a sport administrator. I would always be the last person to be dropped off at home. So I knew where some of our students were living. And, and this is it. If you don't know, you know, get to know or just keep quiet. You know, don't, don't, don't come with your assumptions and, or think that you know because you've read a piece and things on a piece of paper or in a newspaper or somewhere. If, if you haven't had that personal interaction, it's my belief then, you know, just, just make the time and get to understand who the students are and even the coaches for that matter. Yeah, and sort of moving forward to, um, you know, you moving to Stellenbosch, um, which has a higher, you know, catchment area than I would say UWC, you know, a lot of, we're in Pretoria now and a lot of people from Pretoria want to come to Stellenbosch, they want to play rugby for Marquis, they want to be involved in the sporting program there. But, you know, as you arrive and, you know, you look at them now, We've got the, the high performance center in Stellenbosch. How was what was the, the level like as you arrived in terms of sport and diversity and transformation representation back then? It was no way. I mean, when I started there, I tried to understand what the representation of our codes were, and the data wasn't in, even available. Oh, now that that was scary stuff. So by the time I had done the, the, the audit, we had less than 10% of our student athletes who participated at a competitive and or high performance level now. Also bearing in mind, when I arrived there, there were only about two or three sport codes that were part of the high performance program of, of Marty's. And so I obviously had a responsibility to, to put a vision forward uh, because um, the late uh, Professor Russell Bodman um, who uh, interviewed and appointed me by then had already consulted widely and came up with a um, strategic plan framework for Marty Sport, and my responsibility was to, to, to come and implement that. Um, it, 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 was a, it was a task that I, that I took very serious. So um, a lot of people referred to me as a coconut and you know, letting UWC down and all sorts of things. I needed a new challenge in my life. And I knew out there that there was somebody that could take over the reins from me at UWC and continue the, the great journey. And that happened. And so I needed a new challenge in my life. I knew that the then director of sport would be retiring. So I took two years to make my decision. And at the time, two years before I left, I even informed the then rector that I'm leaving with him when he retires. He didn't think that I was serious. And the day when I met with him and I said to him, I got the offer from Stellenbosch, I'm going to accept it. 
he understood. He understood. And, and that was one of the key blessings that I needed in my life. And of course, the blessings of my family. So that's just a little bit back there. I needed this new challenge. And I knew this challenge was going to transform Marty's sport. And the transformation is not just about the demographic. Because then, if you look at the demographic only, it becomes quantitative only and not qualitative as well. And, and, and when I started to do the roadmap and the planning, the first thing I looked at was the sport codes. Because you have to mirror these sport codes based on what's happening in South Africa. And for example, basketball, football, um, you know, uh, th these codes that are generally well represented by black athletes did not get the necessary uh, support that it, that it deserved um, at the time. And so this, this was part of the journey. And so today we're standing at about 41%. Um, we were less than 10%. And we started this journey uh, about four years ago when I wrote the first transformation plan for Marty Sport. And today I can proudly say mo moving from less than 10%, I think we were standing at about 9.1%. We have substantially moved over the last three years because this plan is only three years old in terms of its implementation phase. And this is, is, is a plan that, that, that is relevant and, and applicable to all of our high-performance sport codes because we are the face of the university. Varsity Cup and Varsity Sports helped us uh, and, 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 and move some of the universities out of its comfort zones to say, if you don't make sure that you have a transformed team, um, you cannot compete in our competitions. That was a bold decision and a decision that we, that we specifically in various corners, such as University Sports South Africa, and at the time I was the vice president and I left as the president last year. It was a journey that we all needed to, 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 to work on and follow. Otherwise, it was not going to be successful. So yes, it, and, and, and I, must, I, can, I can promise you it, it, it wasn't easy. But, but it wasn't that difficult. And I tell you why it wasn't that difficult. Because if you develop a vision and you share the vision with the relevant people and you allow them an opportunity to, to, to give input into that vision. So, you know, naturally I would set very high targets and they would say to me, no, Ilan, because of the circumstances of this code, can we revisit it? And I then subsequently appointed my deputy director, Sean Sermon. I mean, we always call him Umlungu, you know, he's uh, one of those Umlungu's uh, white men who, who never shies away to remind you about the importance of transformation and the qualitative ingredients that go hand in hand with them. And he's doing an amazing job between him and Jerry Laka, my director, the sport managers that I have, the coaches that we have. Um, I, we cannot achieve these successes without them. Yeah, no, and it's just it's, it's amazing just to listen to, to, to you know someone, particularly um, someone in high position in sport, uh, not only at Marty's but obviously from in South Africa as well with Sasko, to, to to hear someone speaking so passionately about transformation and literally you know setting out a plan on how to achieve because a lot of South African sports fans find it, so find it very difficult to, to understand the purpose of transformation and all that is involved to actually achieve it on the field. Because on the field is probably the last step, you know, that uh, the one takes to, 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 to achieve full transformation. And obviously we've been involved extensively with um, the, and, and their transformation and how they go about it, you know, we've been uh, in a different 
Yes, so one of the things I wanted to mention to you, the difficult conversations around transformation. So one of the difficult conversations I had was when people, colleagues then said to me, but we need money for transformation. Uh, that's correct. But when you have money, what is it that you do with that money? That was my first question. And the decision was a very simple decision. Uh, it wasn't simple to implement, but I'm talking simple in terms of principle. So if you look at where you spend your money, you must ask yourself the question, have you been spending the money in the right manner? And so this year, we have 60% of our high-performance bursary fund that are going towards our black athletes, 60%. Took us three years to change the system. So before we say there's no money in the system, we need to begin to ask the relevant question to understand why there's no money in the system. So if you come from a very privileged background, you're used to having food, of course. But if you come from a, from a disadvantaged background and you're not used to having food on a regular basis, that means we need to spend more money in certain areas, just as, a, as, as one of the examples. Yeah, and, you know, as you mentioned, you know, knowing the athletes and what you mentioned now recently is using the money in the right departments and, you know, sitting on the, being a part of the committee of the women's rugby, the, the common narrative around that of what I see on social media, etc., is that, you know, in order for for athletes to, to be paid an appropriate amount to, as you say, be able to eat right, be able to travel, be able to train. They need to bring in certain bands and certain requirements. But it's something that, you know, I don't agree with at all because uh, sport and athletes cannot grow without, you know, initial funding and initial support and initial exposure. It's not necessarily waiting for something to, for a sporting team to do something to, to garner that exposure but you know investing in them and watching them grow i think that's something that's beautiful to watch as you've seen with you know banana banana who have grown leaves and bounds over the years and the springbok women's as well and you know seeing them in the sevens tournament last year was also beautiful to watch but how do you think you know saru and you know private organizations can uplift and empower these spaces of um sporting women codes to to uplift and empower them so i mean for the four years that i served on the Tara board and being part of the women's rugby committee uh, a key uh, ingredient missing was money um, so we know that most of our corporates um, for a number of years continue to invest into men's sport only and now the question is, so if you have cert, uh, certain sources of income, should you not naturally make sure that because of the lack of sponsorship that you allocate more money for women's sport? And the answer for me is yes. And so um, that conversation would always be on the table. And therefore you saw the growth and I'm not going to take any uh, uh, recognition for it. For me, it was teamwork. Um, again, like I said, if you have a vision, you need to be able to sell that vision so that at the end of the day, uh, you are able to get the necessary resources for it. 
I believe that South African Rugby Union can do a lot more for women's rugby. And they are on their way to do that because when I uh, ended my term, Rasi was, was working on a long-term plan for women's rugby with the, with the rest of the support team. And he was quite bold to say that he need people to come in to help him understand what women's sport is all about. And I mean, for a, for a world champion uh, a coach to, 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 give, to give an acknowledgement like that, it's, it's, it's you know, it just, it, it, it warms my heart. And so without knowing the detail, I know that there's a long-term plan being developed for rugby. I know there's a long-term plan being uh, in place for football, being in regular contact with the president and chatting about women's rugby, women's football. So when I see something, I, I speak to him and other people. And, and so do a lot of other people. My, my Desiree Ellis, our coach, is a, is a good friend uh, of mine. And if you look at um, other codes of sport, you know, the, the so-called smaller codes in terms of what's happening in rowing, um, it's, it's amazing work that's been done. We know our athletes are doing absolutely great uh, work uh, uh, in terms of year at home as, as well as on world stage. So there is investment. And the question always is, is the investment enough? The answer is no. So what do we mean? If I say no, uh, you know, there's the issue of equal pay. So, so should equal pay be a blanket application per sport code? My answer is no. You have to understand the nature of the code and you have to understand what it means for that particular code. And when we say equal, we say we need to understand and unpack all of that. So if you have a men's team that attracts a, a 10 million rand sponsorship and a women's team that doesn't attract a 10 million rand sponsorship, can you still say that that is the reason why you can't look at, 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 at better benefits or in this instance, hopefully equal pay? And a number of our sport codes have moved into that direction. But it's also strongly linked to the contracting in terms of professionalizing our sport codes. And therein uh, lies a big gap for us in South Africa. Until such time that we properly set up the professionalization of women's sport in South Africa, will we actually get corporate to buy into? I don't think so. Um, so, so, so for me, um, national federations are doing um, and, and are doing uh, things differently and are contributing better towards women's sport. My point is, it's not and enough. Listen, I'm just, because sorry, I'm, 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 you know, on transformation. I'm yeah. Obviously, you know, as you say, coming up with or drawing up um, plans for, 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 for transformation and how to, you know, go around it or go, or, or go through it, sorry. And then, you know, you, you, you definitely need a lot of buy-in from, you know, from multiple um parts of, of, of a company or federation and that also includes you know the coaches and you know as you mentioned Rassi there's a coach who you know won the world cup um has coached at the very highest level it's obviously you can we can see the value that you know how important it is for him or someone like him to to, to buy into you know transformation and to fully understand you know to grasp you know, the concept but how do you then go about in terms of you know particularly in your past positions at UWC and now at um, at at Marty's, how do you go about you know getting buy-in from the coaches to particularly understand some of the policies that you will implement? Because from their side, you know they they might be getting you know, different noises from you know, families or or players themselves, you know players who don't understand what is really going on in the policies that are in place. How do you go about educating the coaches, particularly you know the older generation of coaches who are still pregnant in our sport themselves? Yeah. 
So, so I think I have a, 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 usually I take a position that I don't compromise in. So if we go through your appointment process, I make it very clear to you during the interviews and post-appointment that you have these responsibilities. This is the support system that we put in place. And, you know, if, if, if there are reasons why certain uh, results were not achieved, then we need to talk about it. That's where the support and the developmental part comes in. So we have a coaches forum that my deputy director, Sean Sermon, manages, and we bring people in from outside as well as internally from the university where we have the regular forums. We have uh, personal development plans for our coaches where we expose them to various levels of training and not just the technical. Um, our university uh, offers a range of courses where we all uh, are exposed to, 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 to get to understand and learn about you know, diversity, about culture, about working in a, in a diverse environment. So, our coaches are exposed to, to that. Now, you can train people, but if you don't uh, uh, practice what, what you preach and what people learn, then, then, then you're not going to get the results. So I have a very uncompromised position when it comes to results. And sometimes I have tough conversations with my coaches around that. Um, and, and, and that's good. Uh, so I spend time. I have one-on-ones with, with my head coaches. Um, um, and, and I mean, they obviously have an opportunity to engage with me. But I take the time to talk to them and ask them, how can I make your working at the university better or colleagues that need to support you? Because we underestimate the support that coaches need to make sure that, for example, the team wins, that the team is a transformed team, that, that we have our, our athletes that understand, you know, what is community engagement, what is social impact. So we have what we call a holistic program where we look after our coaches and our athletes within our high performance program. Um, and a lot of work goes to, goes into it. They spend time with our sports psychologists, our coaches. We have what we call a menu of service where our students indicate to us what is most, what are the priorities for them in a particular year. We have our performance uh, meetings on a monthly basis. So it's a lot of work. And I mean, even during lockdown, if I check the figures now, you know, we, we've probably had over a thousand to 300 online coaching sessions with our 300 high performance athletes. So they're doing amazing work, but they can only do it through the support. But I think at times you need to have an uncompromised position, particularly when it comes to transformation. But you can only have that if you give the necessary support to the coaches. For example, we had a situation where coaches would engage in Afrikaans. Now, how do you go and, and bash a person or, or, or force them to, to just have 100% uh, 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 um, approach with, 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 with English, but this person is not able to express him or herself in, in English, um, uh, particularly from a technical point of view. You have a conversation, you sit down, you, you explain the importance of why you also need to uh, uh, um, communicate in English and most importantly at times have in individual sessions, one-on-one -on -one sessions, and, and our coaches have embraced all of that. You know, if I look at uh, um, the, the, our, our rugby team and I look at the journey that, that, that I've had an opportunity to share with them, where we were, when we got there, Martis didn't win the Varsity Cup and there were all sorts of reasons for it. But I had a team of people around me, including alumni, top business people in South Africa who are alumni of Stellenbosch who helped me through the process. And it's by individual engagements, by supporting them, by understanding their side of it. Um, and why are they struggling, etc. But the uncompromised position is, for example, we can't keep on losing black athletes because you don't 
uh, engage with them in a language that makes them feel uncomfortable. Have those uncomfortable conversations. I, I really don't shy away from having the uncomfortable conversations with them, but I also need to listen. And so, yes, these are, these are things that we do on a daily basis. It's not something that you do once a month and off you go, you, you relax about it. It's ongoing conversations and engagements. And our coaches, they are doing amazing work. I'm going to continue to go back and give my coaches the recognition because they are the ones that are closest to the, to the athletes as well as our sport managers. And, you know, looking back at it now, you arrived at at UWC and you, you know, identified areas which need improvement and you implemented projects and frameworks that improved those areas and got to Stellenbosch and did the same. But looking in 2020, obviously, you know, society is more socially um, integrated, I'd say more, but not completely. Um, what key elements or key ex, um, aspects across the spectrum of sport do you see that need improving whether it be you know more grassroots programs to engage diverse communities or women empowerments um you know uplifting them and you know really targeting that area what are some of the key aspects that you think um, you know ngos private organizations need to look at and really put resources into so i think it starts with leadership and not the kind of leadership that we have been used to or have been practicing um, in the last five years. So I've spent a lot of time in looking into transformational leadership. And what does transformational leadership mean? It means that you have to revisit your vision. You know, this lockdown period, the impact of COVID-19, if it does not move us into that direction, then we did not do any introspection. That's the first, and and it's and it's a it's a vision that has to be a collective vision. Now we we shouldn't uh, ignore the fact that within the sporting space, there's a lot of competition, and all of it is not bad. But what we must realize, um, when I say collective vision, collective leadership, there are some sport codes in South Africa that are doing much better than ours. And my question is, how are we going to learn from each other? We don't have those platforms or enough of those platforms. We maybe have conferences here or what we now used to webinars, etc. But is that enough? You know, transformational leadership says to you that this is this is a very closely interconnected space that, that you should keep alive on an ongoing basis. Um, so instead of rugby, soccer, go to the same sponsor. Why don't you take the smaller codes with you that also have a good story to tell? Then you almost become their sponsor. This is these are examples that I'm giving you because th these are things that I apply in my own working environment. I can't do this in another federation, but these are just some of the ideas I take out, which is basically a subsidized model for that matter. The last thing about transformational leadership is that you cannot continue to do things in the same manner that you did in terms of operationalizing your business. We know about the role and the impact of technology. If we look at the generations that we serve in sport today, South Africa in particular, we're lagging behind quite a bit. And I think therein lies a lot of our future successes 
And a lot of time and energy and skills and money needs to be spent in building that digital platform. And, and so not to underestimate the external impact that, that, that various factors have on sport in South Africa. Now, we know we can't take politics out of sport, and that's the last point I wanted to make. So how do you, how do you almost embrace the role of politics so that it does not have a negative impact on sport and vice versa? Because it, it can happen. If you look at the landscape of sport in South Africa, for me, it's a vice versa um, uh, situation that we're dealing with. It starts with stakeholder engagement, but you can't continue and think your stakeholders operate in the same manner. So we almost have to revisit our stakeholder mapping and begin to prioritize and understand who is going to make sure that we will do sport for the betterment and to advance the development of sport. So those are just, um, that's how I see it. I mean, you, we cannot do things um, in the same manner. Um, you know, you mentioned exactly that, you know, not doing things in the same manner and, and adapting and, you know, considering the new sort of um, new angle and new, and new approach that we can take, that we should be taking, you know, to achieve uh, different results. And obviously now with the uh, global uh, situation with COVID-19, uh, the pandemic has brought its own challenges, uh, challenges I'm sure that you've also had to maneuver around and, and, and adjust and, and reimagine how we, we operate. Just what are some of the, the challenges? Obviously, you know, we speak about transformation and the challenges that are there that exist in that sphere, but those will be now multiplied because of you know um, the restrictions on, on, on social interaction and, and attending certain events, etc. So how do we now sort of reimagine the approach to transformation in the current um, um, reality of, of COVID-19 and the pandemic because we can't, you know, we can't really host these huge events to try and empower women or to try and empower young kids anymore. So how do, how do, how does leadership, particularly, you know, in the roles of you serving, how does leadership, how are they looking at this new normal and how we can, you know, continue the fight towards transformation, particularly at the grassroots level? You know, I, I don't think we have, uh, and I don't even have the answers to it, but I can tell you what has happened during lockdown and the discussions around transformation. So the other day we had the University Sports Company's um, annual general meeting where we spoke about varsity sports and its future transformation targets. And the mixed feeling of do we retain the targets of this year or do we stick to the targets of 2021? And, and I supported the, the, the motion that we retain the transformation targets. And let me explain to you why. Our school, all our systems have been disrupted. Now, we don't have the opportunity now to go to tournaments because there's none. We don't have the opportunity to, to have that personal connection with the athlete, the parent, and us. Yes, we do this. We did a, we did a lot of these things um, online, but there's a difference. Like I said, you get to know the person in the right way when you spend time with the person. So recruitment and retention of athletes um, was not the same this year. Now, we're not running away from meeting a target, but the reality is if you don't unpack what has happened in 2021, how do you truly know what 2021 needs to look like. We haven't done that. We said that none of us have done that as a university. Um, as, I mean, we haven't done that at a national level. We've done it as individual university, but we're talking about a national target. However, we said as members of university sport that we understand that there is a process to 
I mean, it can be turned around because we're currently voting for it. Uh, but I gave a motivation, and that's that's one of the the basic explanations I can give to you. Not running away from the targets, but recruitment and retention of athletes. We could not do it in the same way. Now, how do we do this differently? That's that's the emphasis of your question. From my experience um, in transformation and as a university that look at a three-year recruitment plan, I, for example, need to go back to my coaches and understand how their three-year plan had changed. And I recently had the meeting with our head coach for rugby. And the good news is we, are, we, are, we stay on track as far as rugby is concerned, but we can't have the same expectation from other coaches because we know from a national perspective, the picture already looks bleak. So you can't have an expectation at a university level if at a national level we know that it's not going so well. And for me, the only way we can do this is to have the open and the tough conversations, but it has to be driven by a plan. You can't just sit in a meeting and Elam doesn't get, get up and present both the qualitative and the quantitative aspects of her transformation plan, but she's asking you to, to approve that plan. So some people might not have the conversations because of the impact of COVID-19, which I think that's not correct to do. This is exactly the time we must have the, the, the discussion. So we had a train for fees campaign, for example, and it was very clear that we needed to give support where it was deserved, not needed, deserved. I'm using the word deserved because these are high-performance athletes who need all the support that, that, that we can give them. So I'm using this example to say to you, that, that was a new initiative that we did for the first time, fundraising money so that we are able to support the transformation agenda of Marty Sport. It's new. You can tick numbers, you can tick boxes, but if you don't action it, you're not going to get to it. So I'm saying that we have to think out of the box so that next year is not a complete disaster for some of us when it comes to transformation, but it comes back to resources. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about mental health support. I mean, our sports psychologist is spending hours with our individual athletes, with our groups, with our coaches. Um, we've had wellness sessions. So... That's part of transformation because we're going through a difficult period. And how are we going to get to the end of that line so that at least our well-being is good, we're ready to take on a new year, whatever it might bring. And we don't know because the university is only open in mid-March. So our sporting programs are going to come to a halt for another three to four months. And that worries me. Because some of our sport codes are definitely going to feel it. Um, and we're busy doing scenario planning at, 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 at Marty's where we look at one, impact of losing opportunity and income for four years, two, uh, where, sorry, for four months, two, where there's a little bit of in, in, income and we can continue with our programs, three, what if we can't do anything? So that's just in a nutshell. So we, we wrote a, a detailed, ready plan. We're working on that, guided by, by, by the government's regulations. But these are scenario plannings. We don't really know what's going to happen. Therefore, my, my uh, support that we need to retain our current plan on transformation, but bring in the qualitative aspects. For example, if you have a black athlete that is an outstanding student account, what are you going to do about it so that you can retain that athlete next year? If you have a, and, and for me, I'm talking about, because I said, you know, it, it's across the board, because if you only look, on the one side of the team and not at the collective of the team, 
it means your team is not going to be successful. So the one side is tuition fees, the other side is coaching, then it's the well-being of the coaches and the players, etc. That for me would be a different way in supporting the transformation agenda moving forward. Yeah, and we don't want to take up any any more of your time, but you know, it was a real engrossing conversation. I know Rita and I really appreciate you taking up the time to come and speak to us and speak about these issues and we hope you know any listeners um, listening to this conversation are inspired to you know create change in you know different scaling in sports you know whether it be grassroots programs in you know their communities or on a wider scale and that's really what we want to do here get people more proactive and you know creating change and breaking the ecosystem of this so we really thank you for your time and you know, we wish you luck for the future and you know congratulate you on your recent appointment um, on the board of SASCA and we know that you're going to continue to you know do great things for South African sports. Thanks, Brian. Thank you, Peter. So I think we're concluding the 